0: Farmers are people too. That sounds obvious, doesn't it? But when economists try to understand how and why farmers adopt new technology, we usually assume that they are purely motivated by maximizing profits. And we're often unhappy with our results. While we spend a lot of time trying to understand why consumers make the choices they make, often those choices don't make sense to us. Why don't they follow the science? Why don't they just trust us? We don't spend as much time trying to understand why farmers make the choices they do. Why don't they just maximize profits? My guest today says that should change. My name is Mike Von Massow, and this is the Food Focus Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Ellen Goddard, a professor of ag economics at the University of Alberta the cooperative Chair in Agricultural, Marketing and Business, and the current President of the Canadian Ag Economics Society. In her presidential address, Ellen argued that we need to do a better job of understanding the way farmers make choices. We talk about what we need to do and why it matters. It is critical to understand how they may respond to policy interventions. It's also critical to understand how and why they may adopt or not adopt new technologies that could have broader societal implications, healthier food products, environmental uh, issues and and emissions, or even animal welfare. Ellen makes some good points. I enjoyed the discussion and I expect you will too. Well, hello, Ellen, and thanks for taking the time to to chat with me today.
1: Pleasure to be here.
0: So, Ellen, as. uh, uh, People like you and I have spent a lot of time over the last while trying to understand how consumers are making choices relative to the adoption of of new technologies. And we hear people in the industry always scream, damn it, why aren't people making rational choices and and understanding the safety and all of that? In your presidential address uh, for the Canadian Ag Economic Society meetings, you highlighted and i and i thought this was interesting you highlighted that we haven't spent a similar amount of time really or any time any substantial time thinking about how producers are making technology adoption decisions and what are influencing those decisions why do you think that is if i was being
1: facetious i'd say because we know farmers don't like filling in surveys yeah. or answering questions But realistically, I think from the very beginning, um, when we started even designing um, business risk management policies for farmers, we made assumptions that farmers are profit maximizers, and that's all we need to know about what the outcome is going to be. However, if you think about it, none of our business risk management programs have been so gloriously successful that they didn't need to be retweaked and redesigned and um, re-renovated on a regular basis. So I think we don't know enough about individual producer behavior. So, and why does that matter? Well, I don't know what you think, but I think farming has got enormous numbers of challenges now that maybe it didn't have 50 or 100 years ago. I think it's a way more complicated business. Some decisions that are made on farms have implications for um, nitrogen runoff. Some decisions made on farms have other environmental implications. Some decisions made on farms can affect disease outbreaks that could affect other farmers and an entire region's agricultural output sometimes we're not make decisions made on farms are not in line with the kind of priorities that consumers are wanting to have in their food and then we end up producing the wrong thing for the best market So there's a lot of outcomes from these decisions, but farmers are not a homogeneous group. The census is showing us that we're having more um, gender diversity, if you like, in, in who is identified as a farmer. There's an age profile, admittedly, probably too high on the older age farmers, but still there are younger farmers coming in that have different priorities. You must know, um, you probably teach farmers (laughs) or farmers' children, as I do, and they're amazingly diverse in their views of what's important uh, in terms of agriculture. Given that diversity, it's really difficult. In the case of environmental policy, how would you design incentives or sticks, (laughs) regulations that would encourage certain behaviors if they all have a variety of different beliefs about the linkages between their own decisions and environmental outcomes that could affect their neighbors, the city down the road, the country as a whole. And if we don't know about the diversity, we cannot help even in the case of a disaster because people will have responded differently to the disaster. I'm thinking about how terrible drought is in Alberta this summer. And uh, one of my grad students is a cow-calf operator in, in, I don't know which is his spare time, the thesis he's taking the farm, but I suspect it's the thesis, but they have struggled like crazy this summer. Are we keeping cattle? Are we not keeping cattle? There's no water. There's nothing for them to eat in the fields. And and he has found it incredibly difficult to wade through the types of policies that are there to support farmers, even when there's big announcements that there's more money um, because it doesn't necessarily suit his circumstances and he can't can't, uh, figure out where he fits in the policy spectrum.
0: And these and these decisions, particularly things like uh, cow calf and drought, aren't short term decisions. It's not like, yeah. you know, it's not like we're running a car factory and we say, well, we can't get chips, we'll shut down for a couple of weeks, and then it's all good. We we turn on again. Not to downplay that that causes pain, but pain too. But if you stop and you liquidate a cow herd, that is something that has implications two, three, four, five years down the line as we rebuild and, and, and for supply as well, because smaller herd having calves we're holding back some of those calves to rebuild the herd. Those have implications, not just on the farm where, where they're dramatic, but for, uh, for, for the entire food system. And, and so I agree, I think it's, it's profoundly important for us to get a better understanding of how these decisions are made so that we, That we can not only understand, as you said, some of those environmental impacts, but get a sense of what food supply is going to look like uh, going forward. And and are we going to meet consumers' needs? Are we going in the right direction? I'd agree with you on, on the fact that farming is harder than it's ever been, because understanding and deciding what to produce is harder than it's ever been, because it's not... Homogeneous. We're not producing commodities anymore, and and uh, and consumers, as you and I both well know, aren't always rational. So, how do we make decisions that that, that ensure the viability of our farm in, in in the long term? I saw an ad the other day, um,
1: in a in a farm newspaper, talking about um, corn production in Ontario and the corn producers were saying we are the home of corn production in Canada and I thought have you really thought through because we're now growing corn and soybeans around Edmonton but then think through how many hundreds of years could we not grow those crops around Edmonton and now we can and should we and is that is that the best use of the land or should we go back to wheat or barley and canola and that is a change that is coming partly from plant breeding, but it's also coming from climate change, yeah. which is changing the nature of production. And that's another complicating factor that we don't know exactly how producers are going to respond.
0: <laughs> that soybean example is perfect. A few, My in-laws still live in Manitoba. And a few years ago, I was driving with my father-in-law in the area where, where they live, and he asked me what that crop in the field was. And I said, you know, if I didn't know better, I'd say that's soybeans. But I didn't think we grew soybeans in Manitoba. So I got out of the car, and sure enough, it's soybeans. And when I went and checked the statistics, there are more acres of soybeans in Manitoba than there are in Ontario. The, this pace of change, the availability of technology, and as you said, some of the strategic decisions that farmers need to make in the face of resilience, building resilience yeah. in the face of climate change that 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 make this, make it not easy the, to be making some of these decisions.
1: Yeah. And I'm worried, I'm worried that we're going to get some of our, even our decisions about research investment, like at some level, there are governments at the federal level, at the provincial level, as well as industry groups, all contributing funds into research pots. But are we even getting the optimal research investments if we don't actually understand what kind of behavior um, is going to happen from the end users of some of that research?
0: So so I was speaking to a, a beef group in Western Canada a few years ago uh, and a producer stood up in the back row and said, damn it, Mike, why don't consumers just follow the science and behave rationally? Uh, and, and I said, well, let's just hang on a second, sir. What color, uh, what kind of truck did you drive up in? And he, I don't remember the make, but he told me what make of truck it was. And then I said, what was your last truck? And it was the same. And what was the one before that? And it was the same. And I said, what color is the equipment on your farm? Uh, And he told me, and and I said, show me the science that those are the best trucks and that's the best equipment. And show me that you are all making rational decisions in all of the decisions you make in your day-to-day life, not really thinking about it in the context of production decisions. And then I'll go hold the consumer's feet to the fire and say they need to be more rational. If we're not seeing sort of profit maximizing behavior all the time, which I think I'd agree with you. We probably aren't. What factors do you think are affecting producers in their decision-making as to adopting technology or changing practices?
1: Uh, I think like anybody, there's an awful lot of values that we're taught as children through our households, through the kinds of activities our families want us to be involved in, Um, And we, as adults, have no idea how those values influence our day-to-day decisions or innate kinds of beliefs that we hold. When it comes to new technology, I think farmers are, in in general, much more ready to adopt new technologies that they see enhancing productivity on their farms then society is willing to, nowadays, to accept the outcomes of the new technology. I mean, we, we got off on the wrong foot way back when by not talking to the public about how technology was changing on the genetics end. And we terrified people and yeah. they lost trust of at some level. It didn't help that things like BSE came around at almost the same time in Europe. And then the public said, "Hey, wait a minute! We've given you guys tons of rope historically, and now we're not ready to give you quite so much rope anymore." That being said, we, you know, there's this story that I think has existed for my entire career, where we talk about the um, the gulf between the rural, the small, and declining farmer population even though we hire lots of workers on farms nowadays, but the small and declining farmer population and the burgeoning urban population who simply don't understand one another. And farmers often do what they do because they like control over their own decisions. Yes. You see this in all kinds of ways. We're worried about chronic wasting disease in deer and elk in Western Canada, and we did a survey of landholders. And we asked them if it would help get rid of chronic wasting disease, would they allow more hunters on their field? And many of the farmers said very politely, we farm because we don't want people on our property. (laughs) I don't want more people on my property. And I thought there's that individualistic control of your own environment thing. That does drive a lot of stuff. It's interesting, though, that if, if something's going to enhance productivity, fine. It Sometimes the other things, like are you going to switch varieties of, say, wheat? If you could grow this new wheat that's being developed in the UK, that is going to produce less acrylamide when you burn your toast, yeah. <laughs> so it becomes healthier to eat burnt toast. This is a new crop they're working on in the UK. Is a farmer in Canada, if if the price is going to be the same and the yield is going to be the same, how is he going to make the decision of whether he goes for the uh, reduced acrylamide (laughs) when burnt toast variety versus the normal variety? And, And that's where we have to understand does the farmer take responsibility for that link to the ultimate public health of the consumer? Does the farmer think it's the responsibility of the bread maker to worry about that or the consumer? Because you could just put some public health messages out and then it, don't eat your burnt toast or do eat your burnt toast. I, I, we don't know where the uh, feeling is about control and influence over other people's decisions comes into it and we don't know if the farmers think that's a critical part of of how they should make decisions or not and that's a a public health thing that we've barely scratched the surface of our new technologies are going to make us be able to change the nutritional profile of many many things that we actually grow and it's, if we want the outcomes in terms of improved, enhanced public health, then we really need to know who is going to grow them and how many people are going to grow them and whether they're going to be attractive. And it can't all be just on the basis of the price they're going to get for the ultimate product.
0: It's interesting. I hadn't thought about it in that context before. But, but you raised sort of when we introduced some of these herbicide-resistant you know the Roundup Ready and those sorts of things, where we really, I think, dropped the ball to a significant degree. The benefit all accrued at the farm level, and consumers felt like they were taking all the risk. and And this this example you just gave is is almost that exact scenario inverted, where where the consumers get the benefit, and the producer is taking all the risk. Will this Will this yield the same? How do we How do I market it so that? I mean, in many ways, we don't even have the infrastructure. Now, that's changing. We're seeing a lot more direct shipment. We're seeing a lot more contract production where that stuff is going directly into a rail car or directly to, to preserve yeah. the identity. And, and those sorts of infrastructure changes may, may may make some of these decisions easier. But But you're right. It's not always just about a price transmission or, or, a, or a premium. I, I've always said that the, the difference between a premium and a discount is just the direction you're looking at it from. <laughs> and, 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 yeah. you know, at some point, if it's not that kind of wheat, are we gonna get discounted because it's, it's not as healthy? Are there things that from an infrastructure or a communication or a information transmission perspective that can improve this situation?
1: Well, I hope so. Um, I, I don't know how much of an issue this is in Ontario agriculture anymore, but, but in the end, I think uh, when the carbon tax came into play in Western Canada, there's very few farmers who flat on just want to deny the existence of climate change. That's just not, not the tenor of the conversation anymore. But the carbon tax particularly hurt... Grain farmers, who may, in harvest season, need to use grain dryers a bit. And it's just exorbitant, the amount of energy they use in grain dryers. Surely, if we understood more about their process of decision-making, we could have have forestalled that. I know the government's trying now to uh, put some explicit policies in around grain drying, Um, to deal with that issue because they don't want to completely walk away from the carbon tax. But if we'd done that first, if we'd figured out where the trigger point was going to be and why, and, you know, if we'd been in a dry harvest year, maybe it wouldn't have been such a big deal. But if you impose it the same year that you end up with a very wet harvest year, it becomes a bigger deal. Then we could have accounted for grain dryers in some explicit way. But by the way, I work at a university with lots of engineers who have been very successful in figuring out different things about the oil and natural gas industry. Couldn't we shovel some research funds over to them to figure out better ways of drying grain or more efficient grain dryers? We don't have to stick with the existing technology that's going to be an energy sink. And then, you know, how how would farmers adjust to a different method of, of grain drying? Again, requires us to know something a little bit about behavior. Some people are going to be very resistant then they're going to say, I trust what I'm doing now. I know it works, et cetera, et cetera. Some I'm people are averse. going to say, hey, wait a minute. Yeah. If that's better for the environment, I'm in.
0: We, we've highlighted some of these challenges. It, you said it somewhat in jest, but in every joke, there's there an element of truth. Farmers hate doing surveys and they, <laughs> and, 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 it, and it is hard sometimes to understand. As, as ag economists who, who study this and, and hopefully contribute to making the system work a little better, what should we be looking at? What, what, what should some of our priorities be?
1: Okay, so a couple of things. I think part of the reason why farmers hate doing surveys is their life is getting full up of surveys. We are not figuring out sensible ways of collecting data. And for example, lots of tractors now collect more data than, than anybody needs to know about the application of inputs into production, about water, about yields, and all of those kind of things. So please, can we not figure out a way to publicly access some of that information to do things like project, you know, the Stats Canada projections of what canola production is going to be or what yeah. corn production is going to be? So is there a way that we can use new information technology to collect some of these in- information with the farmer's permission, of course, that could avoid him doing some of those really routine surveys. And he wouldn't get envelopes in the mail that he has to sit down in the evening and fill out a form or go online and fill out a form. But secondly, the other thing that occurs to me is we're having a proliferation of people um, in different disciplines, not only ag economists, not only sociologists, but You know, people who've traditionally worked in production agriculture, animal scientists, crop scientists, all of those kind of people think, oh, I'll just do a survey. And you could have a poor hog farmer, for example, being inundated with 14 surveys, many of which are addressing the same sorts of issues. So maybe we have to be much more creative about using public databases, about putting our survey instruments before we even collect the data up in those new and improved databases that exist for you, identifying all your hypotheses before you do the research, so the research will be publishable in the end, but also then communicating more broadly about what we're doing and asking people, if you're doing research in this area, let's collaborate and get one instrument and you know a set of farmers in Alberta only filling in one set of surveys this year instead of five from different groups. And I must say, I do think sometimes the collaboration across disciplines is really critical because I find um, I'm I'm totally supportive of the fact that in, in areas like antibiotic resistance, for example, we need to know so much more about how people are making the decisions, when and where to use antibiotics on farms. But you can't ask a question in a way that is leading and get a meaningful uh, response. and if you're if you're just thinking that your questions just are straightforward and just ask them, then you're misleading the farmer and you're also your research is not in, incredibly meaningful there's there's other examples so would you do gene editing if it improved animal welfare I, i'm sorry that that's ugh, that's not a question that you can ask because how could anybody say they wouldn't yep. approve of gene editing that was going to improve animal welfare you you put them in a social quandary and social bias is going to get them to say yes. So, so there is a benefit to having cross-discipline assessment of the kinds of questions we ask farmers, and maybe there are ways that technology and research reliability things are pushing us to collaborate better so we can reduce the burden on farmers and get more meaningful data.
0: That's, that's my hope all of that is important in the context of the point you made earlier is there are fewer and fewer farmers. So if you're doing a survey of Canadians, you have 38 million people you can draw from, uh, and they're unlikely to get as many surveys where the number of farmers that, that we're interested in is in the thousands. And so they are much more likely to get asks so, to, so streamlining uh, making sure we're asking the right questions, all of those
1: and making sure we're using technology to collect data where we don't need to. Some of the uh, data initiatives that, if pe- if people give permission, we could open up the tax filer data to to answer some questions. Perhaps would also reduce the burden on individuals to respond to different questions. Uh, I mean, all of this has to come with people's permission because it's ultimately their data, but. But we could be more creative, I think, and then maybe only ask the really interesting things on surveys so farmers are enticed into into responding. And and maybe we better do, I don't know, maybe more experiments. They do experiments in developing countries when they're trying to model farmer behavior because they're very concerned about increasing yields and productivity and food security in local countries. And it's odd that more of that kind of research is done in developing countries than it is often in Canada or the United States, for example.
0: Yeah. So lots to learn, but I think you've highlighted the need to do this better and and to really understand how and why farmers are making these decisions so that we can either anticipate them or influence them with carrots and or sticks to get the outcomes that are, are good that are delivering the products that consumers want or the environmental outcomes that, that, that society wants. So uh, thanks for taking the time. I always provide at the end uh, an opportunity to, if, if there's something I should have asked you but I forgot or, or a final point you'd like to make, this is your opportunity.
1: The only thing I really want to say is that I've had a relatively long career now Perhaps my interest in this particular space has to do with the fact that I still find farmers fascinating. I, I find the whole process of making a decision to commit yourself to farming fascinating. I, I see farming as exciting and I, I don't understand why the rest of society doesn't understand how, how varied and technologically sophisticated And actually sort of exciting it is to be a farmer and think about producing food um, to feed people or fiber to clothe people or whatever it is that you're actually producing. Um, I, I have enormous respect for farmers and I guess I don't want to waste their time either.
0: Yeah. And they're people too. Like, I mean, that sounds trite, but they are people too. And, and as much yeah. time as we spend thinking about how consumers are making decisions, we really owe them the same respect to, to really say, if we understand them better, we can do better by them. Yep. And they are fundamental to the food system. So thanks very much, Ellen. I really appreciated you taking the time today and I look forward to, uh, to chatting again.
1: Thanks for having me, Mike.
0: That wraps up another episode of the Food Focus podcast. We very much appreciate you taking the time to listen. If you just discovered Food Focus, you can subscribe anywhere you get podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give us a review. It helps others find us. Before we go, I want to thank my producer, Zach, for his hard work in making each episode sound good and for his original music that helps us transition. He does the hard work and we get to have all of the fun. Thanks. Have a great day.